0: I don't think my reader is, oh well, she is, Elaine is right there, thank you, and hey, let's stand together as we read God's word, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, can I,
1: can I help you raise this? yeah,
0: I think, is that good?
1: even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them.
0: Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of sitting under your word. And Lord, I ask that the cares of today, Lord, that um, may distract us from giving you our attention, would be set aside, Lord, that we would We would be humble, we would be teachable, Lord, that you would uh, fashion and shape us uh, by your Holy Spirit through your word, and Lord, affect us in such a way that we would be conformed to the image of your Son. And Lord, in particular today, Lord, as as I am your messenger, may your word be what is seen and understood, Lord, may you remove Rod Phillips from the storyline, but Lord, would you present yourself as the answer for all of us. And uh, Lord, with this particular passage, Lord, a difficult and often um, uh, contentious passage, would you allow us, just to allow it to speak, and Lord, to say what you are saying, and Lord, may we just be strengthened and encouraged by it, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you, you may be seated. We, uh, we here at Gateway have been, have been working through the book of Ephesians. And uh, so we're, we're here in this passage, not because I chose to preach on it this Sunday, but because it was next in the order of going through Ephesians. And I realize that this section of scripture, for some people, can be hard, uh, hard news, and it can be somewhat contentious, and there can be some disagreement, and uh, I recognize that, and uh, I want to be careful that... that uh, Uh, I don't want to be obnoxious as a pastor or as a teacher uh, uh, and just kind of barreling ahead without recognizing. There's some things in here that are difficult to grasp. And yet at the same time, we must do our best to grasp them and to make sense of them because God has given us his word, not just to skip over, but to allow, to fashion, and shape us to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. And so as we come to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we we probably have what I think would be the most wonderful and the most shocking passage in the whole of Scripture. Um, Why? Because in this passage we come face to face with the true diagnosis of humanity. You're you're not going to find a more graphic and clear diagnosis of humanity than what we find here. And it's far worse than we can ever imagine. Not only that, we find... Uh, on the heels of that, that diagnosis, a, a, a powerful demonstration of God's amazing grace. And friends, it's far greater than we can imagine. And then after that, we're given a clear picture of what God has called us to as we live for him, and it's far more encouraging than we can ever imagine. But it's important that we don't wrench this text out of its context. And like I said, it's here for a reason. It's, it's a natural outflow of what Paul has already been saying in his letter. And so just from the perspective of helping us get the context, let's remind ourselves what, what Paul has said to the Ephesian church. He begins with a eulogy of praise for spiritual blessing or regarding that spiritual blessing. And in that passage, verses three through 14 of chapter one, this eulogy of praise goes up to God. And it's expressed in what we might consider to be theological terms. There are weighty terms that we find in that section of scripture. Terms like, he chose us before the world was created. He predestined us to be adopted as sons. He redeemed us. Through his blood. He forgave our sins. He gave us an inheritance sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Those are weighty topics. But they're, they're kind of theological topics telling us this is what, this is what God has, has planned out for us. And remember, he's speaking to a church. This is a letter written to believers. And so he's praising God for what God says he has done and ultimately what he's doing. And so he also includes in there though the fact that we heard that gospel and that we believed that gospel and as a result of that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful passage of scripture. Then after that, and this is what we covered last week, we find this prayer for enlightenment. Paul then on the heels of that begins by saying, I am praying for you that the the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that the, you would understand the hope of your calling, you'd understand the riches of your inheritance, and you would understand the power of God that is ours. And it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that seated him at the right hand of the Father, that sets him above all things, and in particular, as head of the church. Now Paul begins to explain their salvation. That's what's going on here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Not from God's perspective, but more from their perspective about what was I like, and what did God do, and what does that mean? So maybe we could ask these questions. What was their condition? What did God do while we were in that condition? And what is God ultimately accomplishing in us? And I would like today to begin By looking at verse 10 of this passage. Chapter 2 and verse 10. And I think this will give us a, a bigger picture of what's going on in this broader text. For we are his what? His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Let's just stop there. We are his workmanship. What's that talking about? Well, if you remember... In, well, In this passage, if we read on, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, in chapter 1, we're told that God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. So this workmanship is not something that has happened you know, in the last 20 years or so. This is a workmanship that started before the creation of the world. But we are his workmanship. It is God that has been at work before the creation of the world to accomplish that something in us. He planned our creation, He determined what we would look like. Now, I've been in some churches where we've had a children's ministry, and in the children's ministry, there have been these these, um, pine box derby things, you know, the pine card derby. You know what I'm talking about? All right? What's it called? Pinewood Derby, there you go, it's that wood part, right? Derby. derby, Derby, what else is a Derby? It's the same thing. Um, I'm from England, we have a Derby there, okay? So, all right, Pine wo- Pinewood Derby. All right, we got that all cleared out, okay? Good. Well, what happens there is that kid gets a block of wood, right? And he gets some wheels, and I think an axle, right? He goes home and he hands it to Dad, Right? <laughs> And somehow, dad, with the child, that's the whole idea, is supposed to create a car out of that block of wood. And that car can be anything you want it to be. And not only do you shape that wood and fit those wheels in there, but then you can paint it all up. Okay? But you, you plan that block of wood, you create that block of wood, but that, that, that car is not actually running until the race has begun. Now, I know it's it's not a great illustration, but the point here is this, that God had already planned our creation as his workmanship before the creation of the world. Now, I know it's incredible to fathom that, but that is what he says he has done. So he fashioned and shaped us according to his desires, how we would think, behave, and worship him, how we would struggle, suffer, and live, how we would function with our gifts and talents, how we would reflect the Godhead in marriage, how we would raise our children to be faithful citizens where he places us. See, we're, we're, we're chosen and predestined before the foundation of the world. We are his adopted children and redeemed in Christ. And hear this, and the work of the life of good works that he has called us to is the fruit of his work in us. So as workmanship, he has created us for good works. So the work, this, this works, these good works are the fruit of what he is doing in us. And so this passage is still driven by a sovereign God working out the purposes of his will, the good pleasure, or his purpose, or the counsel of his will. Those are all expressions from chapter one. God does this out of the purpose or the pleasure or the counsel of his will. So now, as we look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we can see that it reveals the story of our salvation, the powerful gospel, and it naturally divides into three sections. And let me give you those three sections, not that they are the headings, but you're gonna get tripped up here if you don't listen. First of all, there's two bookends, so that means the first one and the last one, okay? The first bookend is what I'm calling the walk of death, the walk of death, and it's marked by bondage. The second bookend, uh, verse 8 through 10, is the walk of life, or you might even say the walk of grace, okay? And then we have this this sandwich in between power of love, and friends, that's what blows us away. So this morning, what we want to do is we want to we walk our way through this passage. This is one thought that, that Paul has in, this, in his argument here. We want to see it in its totality. We could get bogged down looking at the trees, but I want to make sure that we, we see a little bit more of a forest than we are looking straight at the trees. So let's turn now and think about this walk of death, this walk of death. Now, Just as in chapter 1, Paul talks about the we of the Jews and the you of the Gentiles, which are united together in the hour of this new people. It's the end of uh, that, that eulogy there. So Paul now begins with this you, you once walked, and then brings the Jews and the Gentiles together with the we all once walked. We all are doing this together. So there's this, there's this purpose here that Paul is, is bringing everyone together to say this is a description of, of us, not just a description of you, this is a description of mankind. This is a description of all of mankind. Okay. And, and, and his words um, of instruction now are bathed in the prayer of enlightenment and they're for all believers, in Ephesus and through the ages. They reveal to us uh, just an incredible picture of our very nature, and this is, this is so relevant for us today, friends. We must, we must, we must get this. So how are we to assess human nature? In the history of the whole world when I' to say the history of the human race, there have only been three basic answers to that question. How do we assess human nature? Um, number one, mankind is basically OK. He's well. He's healthy. Secondly, mankind thinks that he's okay, but at times he slips into a season of not being okay. So he's sick. Okay, so you're either well, you're sick, and then there's the biblical diagnosis. Anyone guess what it is? You're dead. You're not well, you're not sick, you're dead. Now let's just see what scripture says here. All right, we were dead Now verse one, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. They were walking in trespasses and sins. They were dead toward God. Now what is this trespasses and sin? A trespass simply means that you have veered off the path. You've gone outside the boundaries of what has been established as healthy and right. So God's standards have been uh, left behind, and you have you have transgressed. You've gone beyond those boundaries. The word sin means to miss the mark. So the idea there is that you haven't even reached God's standard. So there are two words that kind of encompass all of the ways in which we can um, we can offend God or we can be separated from God. Okay, we can walk away from His standard or we can fail to reach His standard. Now, I, I, years ago, I used to have this little little booklet. It was called. 101 uses of a dead cat. Anyone have that? 101. Why do they stop at 101? I can think of many more uses of a dead cat, right? But my my two favorite uses of a dead cat are number one, the back scratcher. You know, it's the cat's like this, and his tail is hard, and you just kind of, you know, (laughs) scratch your back, right? It's really good, all right? I like that one, all right? The other one I like is the toilet roll holder, okay? Front legs here tail down, and he's holding the toilet like this, okay? You know, you can greet that every day, right? Now, why is this book helpful for us here? You're thinking, I have no idea where he's going with this, all right? The point I'm trying to make is this. A dead cat is dead. It's not alive. It's it's no longer chasing yarn. It isn't tearing up your leather furniture. I'm getting personal here. It isn't mewing because it wants more food or wants to go outside. It won't come and sit on your lap no matter how many times you clap your hands, dangle ham in front of it, or kind of entice it with tuna. It will not come. Why? What's the answer? It's dead. It's not interested in anything that you do. It has no capacity to understand what is going on. Why? Because it is dead. Now the point that we need to see here is that a person is spiritually dead. He's not just a little dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were totally dead? Why do we even have to use the word totally? You're dead, right? You're either dead or you're not dead. The problem is Many times we have difficulty with the language and what is being presented here, and we still think, okay, we're dead, but we're still alive enough to exercise faith. The God has left us dead, but he's left us dead with a little bit of faith. So it's kind of like saying, that cat is dead, but if I hang the tuna there, oh, maybe I'll be alive then. No, it's dead. We've got to see what Scripture is saying about our condition. We were dead in our transgressions, our trespasses, and sins and to say that that somehow this little bit of faith left in us is, is enough to reach out and grab a hold of God is to betray what this passage is saying. The point that Paul is making here is to assess the hopelessness and the helplessness of man's nature apart from God. He is dead, and he is walking on this earth in his dead condition. In a sense, we're all, before Christ, spiritual zombies, Walking dead. That's the first assessment. The second assessment is this. We're enslaved. Not only are they dead, but we're also we're decaying due to our enslavement to the world, the devil, and the flesh. Now we might want to say that our situation in life is driven by the choices that we make. Anyone here make choices today? Absolutely, I mean, so we live in the world of making decisions and choices and like that, but the reality is that our individual choice is fashioned and shaped by the world, the flesh, and the devil, okay? That is what is being talked about here in this passage, where it talks about following or living in or carrying out in the next couple of verses. The world, the flesh, and the devil are not just the source or arenas of our temptation, they are the sources of our enslavement, they drive what we think. They fashion what we do. So let's just take each one um, one at a time here. It says here, following the course of this world. So we're first of all, enslaved here to the world. The world is full of itself, isn't it? You Just turn the TV on. The world is full of itself. It writes its own agendas. It hires its own journalists. It paints its own philosophy as the only true, realistic, and reasonable way of living life. By the way, just a little side note here. If you want to really find out what's going on in the world, don't watch any American news station. Okay? Because you'll go from you know, Obama to Final Four to little cat caught in a tree while there's like a war going on in a particular country that they don't tell you anything about. You want to get like on BBC or some European thing where you can get better news. And that's the point here. The world fashions and shapes what you should think is important. They tell you what to think. Now the world not only does that, it's not only full of itself, but it mocks Christianity as being simple-minded and narrow. It is offended that Christians are so consumed by their Bibles and even considering following this person called Jesus. If you God's people as weak and enslaved to a non-existent crutch to get them through life. But Paul tells us here that in our trespasses and sins, we were following the course of this world, which is a way of saying enslaved to the thinking and the course of this age. And friends, that's how man thinks, apart from God. Secondly, we're enslaved by the devil, it says following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience now the devil is, is comes at us in a number of titles this one is a title referring to the devil himself so let's make sense of this the prince is the devil Um, and in the context of what's going on in in Ephesians, we find him coming up in chapter four and verse 27, and then ultimately in chapter six, and there's this theme of power, there's this theme of principalities and rulers and authorities, but here he is this prince. The power speaks of his workers or his demons and their activities among the affairs of man. The air represents the realm in which they are doing these things. The spirit is the, the influence that permeates the air through the outworking plan and the ongoing efforts of Satan. So he is at work. He is doing all he can through his organized army to seek his way to thwart what God has determined will take place. And he does it by influencing you. And he fashions and shapes us. And ultimately, the sons of disobedience refers to those who are also following and obeying the spirit of the age. So following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, he's saying this is what we were doing. We were enslaved to the devil. And so the devil and his influence moves through his minions to influence the realm of man, seeking to enslave mankind in disobedience to the one true and sovereign God. The third area of influence here would be the flesh, the flesh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. So this is not simply describing some excesses associated with things like gluttony, lust, or drunkenness, and you can go on down the list. This is a description where sinful desires come from. The desires of the body and of the mind, it says. As James puts it, James chapter four, maybe you wanna turn there, James chapter four, beginning at verse one and going into verse two, says this, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And friends, these sinful passions, these desires of the flesh, um, I should say these, these passions, these sinful passions being talked about here are what we call idols of the heart. An idol of the heart is basically something that we want so bad that we're willing to sin to get it or that we're willing to sin if we don't get it, okay? An idol is something you want so bad that you're willing to sin to get it, or you're willing to sin if you don't get it. So let's just think about a a young girl in high school, 13, 14 years old. She wants to be accepted. She wants to be loved. And so to to get that feeling, she she will be willing to sin. She'll be willing to throw herself out. She'll be willing to give her body to get that feeling of love from other people. And what's happening is, yes, she may be falling into the sin maybe of immorality, but what's more important there is the sin of idolatry, of saying, I want to be loved. That leads then to this place of saying, you know what? I'm willing to sin in order to get what I want, right? We're not, you know, this isn't Christmas season, but Christmas season, this makes perfect sense. I want that parking spot, and you're not going to get it. And someone sneaks in front of you, I can't believe they got there in front of me. You, your idol popped up real fast, I want it, and if I don't get it, I'm going to get angry. Right? And this happens all the time, friends, This is idolatry. These are the desires of the flesh. This is how the flesh influences us. And this is what Paul is saying. We're dead and we're enslaved to the world, to the devil, and then also to the flesh. But not only that, that would be bad enough. We're also condemned. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, I don't know if there's a group out there called, you know, the... the, Happy children of wrath or something like that? Probably not. I don't think that's a name that you want to have on the back of your t-shirt. But then again, there may be some strange people out there. Okay? This is the resulting condition of mankind that wants nothing to do with Christ. They're children of wrath, which means that God's holy anger ultimately will be directed at them. And mankind in his sin Following the world, the flesh, and the devil is without hope outside of Christ. Now, friends, verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 2 are not popular in contemporary culture. And I would go so far to say they're not even popular in the church in America. And the question would be why? Well, because we don't like the language of wrath, of judgment of condemnation. We want a loving and forgiving God who will deal with us in ways that will give us the assurance that all is well. Let me ask you a question. Has Paul already communicated to the Ephesian church God's love? He certainly has on a number of occasions. This passage, when it's wrenched out of its context, doesn't take into consideration that Paul has laid down God's love by his choice, by his predestination, by his adoption, by his redemption, by his forgiveness. It's all about God's love, his grace, his goodness towards us that helps us understand the reality of our condition here. He's speaking, then, remember, to a church. So this is the the whole picture is, yes, God does love us. That's why he pursues us. That's why he draws us to himself. But what we have here is the grim picture of mankind apart from God. Or to put it another way, mankind in rebellion against God. Now the problem is we don't like God's diagnosis. Our condition seems to us far worse than we ever imagined. And that's because we think much better of ourselves. We actually think we're basically good. We actually think that our good works somehow outweigh the bad. But God is getting to the heart of the nature of mankind, and man's nature is opposed to God and under God's wrath. Just just let me paint a picture for you. Your neighbor, who is a let's just say, a nominal atheist or agnostic. Nice guy. He offers to cut your grass. Nice guy. He plays with his children. Nice guy. He shows up at community events to volunteer his time. Nice guy. He picks up your mail when you are on vacation. He replaces your trash cans when you're gone. Nice guy. He is a man totally tainted with sin throughout his heart and mind and in his very nature is following the world the flesh and the devil and in God's eyes he is under condemnation and destined for an eternity in hell see what we see is we see goodness in man and we think that equates to God's favor on man But we have to recognize that man is born in sin. Not the actual act of conception, but man is born in sin. He is sinful through and through in every part of his being. Everything that he does, even what appears to be good, is tainted with sin. So even that neighbor, who's a good guy, is totally sinful in his being. That's not my assessment. That's God's assessment of mankind. Now, that's hard for us to grasp. That's hard for us to embrace. Now, to help us out here a little bit, the Bible does give us images to help us understand this total inability and dead nature of man. And there is one particular illustration um, that helps us immensely, and it's the encounter with Jesus and Lazarus in John chapter 11. Now, you sure you know the story. Lazarus is what? Dead. Now, all the detail in the passage lets you know that it's not like this is not like a fake death. I mean, he, he's been dead long enough that those things are no longer a consideration. He truly is dead. Now, if you're one of the family friends, you're not going to go and stand outside. The tomb when Jesus is coming and say something like this, Lazarus, you need to get up because Jesus is here to help you. You're not going to say, Lazarus, come on now. He's really a wonderful Savior. Will you please come here next to next to the, to, to the you know the stone? That'll be good. I'm sure he can do the rest. Um, or, or all you need to do is reach out to him and he will save you. Come on, Lazarus. If you will just take the first step, he will do the rest. Why? is that a foolish assessment of the situation? Because Lazarus is what? He can't get up. He can't lean in the direction of Jesus. And that's why when Jesus comes, and he says, Lazarus, come forth, that is the miracle of God's sovereign power on someone who is dead physically and bringing life back to their body. And friends, it's a wonderful picture of the reality of our sinful deadness before God and our need of a sovereign solution. It was only because Jesus gave him ears to hear, strength to move, breath to live, and will to obey. Dead Lazarus responded, but Jesus was responsible for the new life. Now since we are spiritually dead, We cannot move toward God. Our nature is opposed to God and will stay in that condition unless God in his mercy and grace calls us to new life in him. So Paul is is taking time to show us our helpless and our hell-bound pre-Christ nature. We're walking dead men, totally ensnared by the thinking and behavior of the world, flesh, the devil. And because of our dead and slave nature, we have no ability to turn to God. And as a result, we're under God's wrath, headed for a just eternity in hell. And then Paul introduces us to two of the most beautiful verses, or beautiful words, I should say, in all of his letters. Look at chapter four. But God... Now friends, verses one through three are a daunting assessment of man's nature apart from God, are they not? And he reveals it to us, but then he follows that assessment up, speaking to believers about what happened to them, and he says, but... God, in the middle of making plain to us our total inability to turn to God, Paul shows us our utter need of sovereign deliverance that is beyond our reach. We don't reach, God reaches us. He stoops down and powerfully awakens us with his love. And without a a clear diagnosis of our humanity, we will fail to grasp the wonder and majesty of God's love and grace toward us. I want us to think now about the love of God. Here we have the power of love, and I want us to think now about this love of God that is contained now in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love, with which he loved us. Just think about that. Here we are in our condition. This daunting, incredible, distancing, vile, helpless, hopeless condition. God was still in this mode of loving us. Rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. God is a God of love and Mercy. This is not a love and mercy reserved for the innocent. We began our services today with Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, it's that still condition. There's nothing that we've done to change the nature of that condition. And it's while we were in that condition that he reached out, extended mercy, uh, demonstrated his love toward us. So we do come face to face with the still of God's love and mercy. When we are in the, the thick of our sinfulness and rebellion against him, even then God still sovereignly loves us. There is nothing that we have done to deserve his mercy this is simply the outflow of his love and character sovereignly bestowed on us. This incredible love of God. But now I want you to notice the power of God. And we've, we've already seen the, the, the content of what he's gonna say here being talked about about Jesus at the end of chapter one. So this is kind of picking up and he's reflecting back to what he's already said. Look at verse five. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What's going on here? The power demonstrated in chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, regarding Christ is now applied to those who are the objects of his love. He makes us alive together with Christ. He, he, He raises us up with Christ. He seats us with Him in the heavenly places. This is our identity now. I just want you to pause and think about this. If you're a child of God, you right now are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You're like, we're not talking about physical realm here. We're talking about the spiritual realm of being God's children and having experienced the power of his resurrection, the power of his ascension, and the power of being seated with him in heaven. This is our position, and friends, hear this. This is critically important for us understanding how we approach chapters four and onward in the book of Ephesians. If we do not understand that, that our place at the, at the side of Christ being seated with him is not our identity and our position, we will pursue the, the commands and the instructions of Ephesians 4 and following really as, as, as more of a legalistic thing than it will be an outflow of the grace of God at work in us. This is really important. And that's why it's important, friends, and hear this, to study through a book so that when you get to those places, you realize all that took place in chapters 1 through 3 to help you understand what is meant by what is happening in chapter four and following. Not only is there this power of God and love of God, but there's this glory of God. Look at verse seven. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's like, man, that's a mouthful, isn't it? What's going on here? What is it that Paul is telling the Ephesian believers here? He is saying, that the same power that raised Jesus, seated him at the right hand of the Father and set him as ruler and as the head of the church is the same power that raises us, seats us, helps us to live our lives for his glory now. and for the, From this moment, from the moment I should say of our salvation and forward through the ages, God is showing his kindness and his grace towards us. So if you are a child of God, you were were created before the foundation of the world. And from that point, he had in his heart this desire to show kindness to you. And in showing kindness to you to demonstrate his goodness and his glory to everyone. He wants to be on display. He wants to be seen. He wants to be glorified. This is what it means to be united with Christ to be loved by God, to be spiritually alive, to be sitting in our spiritual position with Christ, in Christ, in the heavenly places. To be able to live our lives now for his glory because of the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness. And friends, the diagnosis of mankind's condition is far worse than we can imagine but the good news of life in Christ is far greater than we can imagine. Can you, just can you imagine that Jesus has welcomed you to be seated with him in the heavenly places? Now we're gonna move on to the last part and that's the walk of grace. And here's where things get a little bit more practical. First of all, I want you to notice that we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So faith is this, I want to say this this agent that is the means by which we appropriate our salvation. But let's just step back a little bit. We sang a lot today about grace, didn't we? Did you catch that? In this passage, the word grace is used quite a bit. In our contemporary culture and our Christian culture, the word grace is used in many different ways. Grace is a popular concept that our contemporary culture, even our contemporary Christian culture, loves to talk about. But friends, my assessment is that that Christian culture has been guilty of distorting grace, so that it has become a concept that is honestly very misunderstood. Let me give you some examples of that. Our culture, and that's not just the church, but the culture views grace as kind of this this unconditional kindness. It means leniency. It means tolerance. It means niceness to people. It means compassion. Now, it's with this distorted view um, that I have been the object of people's ungraciousness (laughs) pastor you preach too much on sin and judgment what we need is more preaching on grace how can you practice church discipline where is the grace in that and my friends the answers to those questions quite frankly are and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense but we really need to be students of the word and we need to make sure that we understand that what God says in his word, he actually means. Not just kind of picking up a little passages here and a few verses there. As we read through books, as we read through what God has revealed with the intent of the author in that text, we will find out that here, Paul wants us to understand the actual critical nature that we are in and that we are totally unable to come to God at all. It is not ungracious to speak that way. In fact, it is very kind because there is a solution. And that solution we call amazing grace, right? It's not amazing if you aren't really dead. It's not amazing if you actually had a little bit of faith in you. You could reach out and grab God. No, you're dead. God had to come and he had to breathe life into you. Now friends, hear this. remember, He's writing a letter to believers. This is not an evangelistic letter. This is a letter to believers, helping them understand the nature of what God has done. From our perspective, what happened? Going on one day, and we heard some news, some good news about Jesus, and what is all this thing? You kind of well, go into church, and you hear, and maybe read the Bible, and things start happening. It's like you begin to kind of become aware of things. Like, wow, yeah, yeah, I, boy, I need Jesus. From our perspective, we're doing all this adjusting. We're the ones that are making the decisions. But what scripture reveals for us is that it's God that is working behind the scenes, that he is drawing us to himself. He he is waking us up. He's breathing life into us. And that's the point here that Paul is making in Ephesians 4. We must see that. Another distortion of grace is that it is somehow a substance that we need more of. In other words, when we go to church, when we say a prayer, when we do good work, we get an infusion of grace. And as we tell the truth or participate in communion or put money in the offering plate, we get more grace infused to us. Friends, that is Catholic theology. It says, you know what, I'm just going to do some good works here and somehow now I'm going to step up the ladder a little bit more. And I've got to do some more works and step up the ladder and do a little bit more. Hear this. The grace that is applied to believers is grace that is applied once. It's applied once at the moment of salvation when you are declared righteous, you are justified before God, and you have received all of grace. Now the question is, what do you do with the grace that you have? Do you lean on that grace? It's not a commodity that I stored up. Hey, look, you know, I'm going to take it to my house, my, my garage. Look at my garage, Look. It's grace, grace right there, some, got a little faith here, and I got some hope, I got some grace. You want some grace, I'll give you some grace. No, it's not like that, but so we've distorted it. Grace, ultimately, friends, is this. Grace is God's favor. It's God looking down at us before the creation of the world and favoring us. Now, from our perspective, as I said, we do the hearing and believing. From God's perspective, He is the one that favored us before the creation of the world. Now, this is where it gets difficult. It means that you, I, and other believers are saved, not because we chose God, but because God favored us over others. It's like,
1: <sighs> how
0: dare you say that? God is playing favorites. I'll tell you something. God does have favorites. They're called his children. Now the reason we have difficulty comprehending that is because if we were to play favorites, we would be sinful in favoritism. Is God sinful? No. God does not suffer from the practice of favoritism, which is a word which carries the idea of injustice. God in his very nature, is just. He cannot practice favoritism. He gives, actually, every individual what they deserve. But he also shows favor on some. Now friends, I'm just like you, in the sense that um, there's there's a part of this where I I struggle a little bit. You know, because you do ask the, the fairness question and then you're also saying, well, what about those that are part of my family or my friends? And, you know, do they somehow get in, right? And we start going and using terminology like that. And that's not where God wants us to be. He's simply saying, listen, this is what I do. And you are responsible for what you do. We are totally responsible for God. But God is sovereign. He is accomplishing his will. And that is what he's revealing for us. So there's this this, this, this dire assessment of man's nature, there's this wonderful demonstration of the power of his love, and we moved now into this, this life of grace, or this walking in grace, and he presents here two negatives. So we, we've looked at some of the distortions of grace, but now I want you to notice how he clears up some issues about grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So the first thing we need to see here is this. Our salvation, which is appropriated by faith, is not from ourselves, but is the gift from God. Okay, it's part of our Christian vocabulary to think that faith is something we offer to God in order to take hold of something um, he wants to give us. But if that were true here, then the diagnosis of verses one through three that we are dead in our transgressions and sin would be incorrect. Dead people cannot take hold of anything. If it is left to us, friends, we are, of most, we are of most men most miserable because without God's gift of faith, we are left helpless. Now it is faith that is given to us by God so that we can believe. Now it may appear As I said before, that we are the ones that are choosing God on our own, but Paul is being honest here about the fact that it is God. It's really God that has chosen us. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now friends, this should cause us to be deeply humbled. Humility is a response to God's grace. Why me? Is it because of your great job? Is it because of your good looks? Is it because of your personality? Is it because of all the money you put in the offering plate? Is it because of your hard work in the body of Christ? No. I don't know. What I do know is that I was a worm, I was a wretch, but God extended his grace toward me and he brought me, he drew me into his family. There's nothing that I did to somehow appease him or somehow work my way to a place where he would accept me. No, it's all his doing. Friends, that is comforting, but it's also humbling. The second thing here he tells us is this, another negative, our salvation is not a result of works. It says, verse 9, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There is no way that we, come, uh, we came to be one of God's adopted children by boasting in how great our works were. So if you're trying to perform your way to please God, you're on a wrong road. That is not how God wants you to interact with him. He doesn't save you based on your performance. He doesn't draw you into his family based on your performance. We have nothing to impress him with. We have nothing to boast about. Hear this, because there is nothing that God needs or wants from us. Now sadly, in our psychologized society and even within the church, people have said things like this. God is not, God is not in heaven suffering. Um, sorry, God is in heaven suffering from an empty love cup. I mean, true, I, you, you can see it in this psycho- psychological works that are under the umbrella of Christianity that God is, has this empty love cup that is filled by our love. Towards. It's like, what? His self-image is somehow improved because we have blessed him by falling in love with him. The point there is they're presenting a God that is needy. He doesn't need anything from us. We are the ones that need something from him. That's just all nonsense, friends. And it totally ignores the plain teaching of scripture. He loved us despite the fact that we were rebels against him. And we sang a song earlier that really is kind of a a modernized version of of this wonderful song, Rock of Ages. And one of the stanzas in there says this, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me savior or I die. I love that picture of, of this foul and it's, it's a bird that's saying, I, I'm, I'm flying to that, that fountain. and I'm going I'm to find my nourishment there. That's what we're saying. This is what grace does. It draws us to see that the only place where we can satisfy our souls is in God. We didn't do it. We don't bring anything into it. But we are the recipients of an incredible, marvelous, wonderful, amazing Grace. Now it's worth being honest about the fact that although God clearly states his sovereignty in our salvation, that it is extremely difficult to comprehend it fully. As I mentioned, there's still this questions of fairness. We're still concerned about people that we love. But, but the purpose of Paul presenting these truths here, these hard truths, these wonderful treasured truths, is to bring comfort and guidance to his people not to condemn them and although we may not have all the answers we do have responsibilities as God's children so not only are we saved by grace here's the last part here we are God's workmanship and we're going back to the beginning here where we started Rather than working for our own salvation, we are in fact God's workmanship. He is the one who before the creation of the world chose us and predestined us in Christ. We were in his mind and he has been working his plan since then. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a wonderful spiritual balance that's going on here. Faith is a gift yet we exercise it. Good works do not save, yet we cannot be saved without beginning to walk in the good works which God prepared beforehand. Okay? Just a wonderful balance that God gives us about that. Our walk is therefore a walk of grace. It is an entirely new lifestyle. It's a walk of a new life that is marked out by good works. And as I mentioned before, those good works are not me trying to please God. Those good works are the result of God working his grace in me and through me and out. So I'm not saying, God, look what I did, look what I did, look what I did, look what I did. We're saying, God, thank you for allowing me to be a vessel that you would be willing to work through which is a totally different approach. So any good work that I have done is only because God has done his good work in me. Now friends, this is all going to be really really helpful for us as we move on into chapter 4. But let's let's look at chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. Turn to chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 if you would, please. And let me just show you what I mean chapters one through three, just heavy in doctrine, heavy talking about this, this salvation that we have, and, and how God is, has done it, and, and, and how Paul prays that we would be enlightened to understand it, and then he jumps in with this passage, and he explains what God is actually doing in more detail, he shows our nature, he shows what, what God has done by gloriously blowing into that context, and, and, and loving us, and drawing us to himself, and embracing us, and And then he he gives us this wonderful life of walking as his workmanship, producing good works. And then chapter four, verse one, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and so on. See this this walk that he's calling us to is not like okay I got to pull my socks up and I got to walk and I got to somehow impress God. No. This is a walk that is fueled by God and his calling us. When did that take place? Before the foundation of the world. He working his plan, he redeemed us, he's forgiven us. He has provided for us an inheritance. And so here I am in this already not yet state between the cross and the resurrection, and I am now to live for his glory. And what that means is I say, okay, there's a walk that he wants me to walk. But the, the power of that walk is not in my, what I do, the power of that walk is what Christ has already done. Our ability to do parenting, to do marriage, To live our lives in the context of being faithful citizens. And all the things that he reveals for us in those chapters. It's all because of the fact that we are in Christ. We are united with Christ. That's where our strength comes from. And if we abandon that, then what we end up having is kind of a legalistic, I'm trying to perform before you, God, kind of walk. And we'll get tripped up. And so, friends, it's really important that you and, and we labor in these chapters, one through three, to, to get the basis of the understanding of what is driving these practical instructions that we have in the latter part of, book, uh, of Ephesians. Now, some concluding thoughts. Let me, give you, let me give you three, real brief here, but I think helpful. Number one, the wonder of grace cannot be fully appreciated without a clear picture of the utter despair of mankind without God. If you don't see your condition before Christ as desperate as verses one through three see it, then you do not understand. You don't have a grasp of what amazing grace is all about. And so God in his goodness has revealed to us the true nature of who we were, but he's also revealed to us the true nature of who we are now. Secondly, the power of grace is the necessary power that brings life to all who believe as well as to live our lives for the glory of God. So this power of grace, this power that can raise Jesus from the dead, that can can, uh, take him up to to heaven, to be seated uh, with the right hand of the Father, to, to rule over everyone, and in particular to be the head, that same power is now... The power that raises us from the deadness of our darkness and our death to new life in Christ. And it's this power that helps us to live our lives for the glory of God. It's just really important that we grasp those two things and even this last one. The life of grace is one, the life of grace is one that rests in Jesus Christ as the only measurement of our standing before Almighty God rather than the ongoing efforts to try and impress him. Now friends, when, when, when you and I as believers wander off in sin face trials get discouraged um, lose our way the place that we need to go to is to, is to see once again afresh our standing before God. You see, oftentimes what we think is because we're, we're in sin, because we've, we've, we've wandered from the path, that somehow that, that I am kind of in this direct line to God the Father. And so I'm under his wrath, but I'm a child of God. I'm not under his wrath because someone has taken his wrath for me. And that someone is Jesus Christ. And that was a, that was a taking once for all. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, it was a once for all. So no matter where you are in your walk with God, the certainty that you and I have is our position in Christ. We are always under the umbrella of the protection of the riches and the glories of Christ. Even when we sin. Even when we wander. Even when we fear and we struggle. but see, if we don't keep that as central to who we are, and we'll, we'll begin to think that somehow I've wandered away and I've, I've got to do this thing and I've got to do that. No, you've got to place yourself you know, in your mind, in your heart, and say, where am I? What is my identity? What was done for me on the cross? You fight your way to believe what God has already said is true about you rather than believe the lies that are coming to you from the devil. And friends, That is comfort. <laughs> That is amazing grace that is ongoing for the child of God. Lord, we've, we've tackled a very difficult, wonderful, challenging, beautiful, penetrating passage of scripture. And Lord, it has been weighty, and yet, Lord, it has had wonderful truths. And Lord, allow us, by your Holy Spirit, to wrap our hands And our minds, and our hearts, around what it is you want to reveal to us today, Lord. Maybe we have falsely, as believers, considered ourselves still in verses one through three. And certainly, Lord, there's the possibility that we've allowed the the influences of the world and the the devil and even of our flesh to to capture us and to, to grab a hold of us. But, Lord, we are no longer under that power We are no longer enslaved to those things, Lord, because we are enslaved to you. So, Lord, free us from from getting stuck back in there and help us to see the beauty of what your grace is all about. And, Lord, free us then to live as your workmanship, to see, Lord, that you have been fashioning and shaping us to be what you want us to be, so that you can accomplish your will on this earth through us, that we will be people who have a heart to do good works. Lord, not to impress you, but simply because, Lord, we want to be used by you for your glory. Lord, we don't deserve that kind of respect from you, that love, that grace, but we are so grateful. And Lord, we don't have to struggle wondering if we need more grace. Because Lord, your grace is sufficient and your grace is enough. And your sacrifice on that cross was sufficient and it was enough and it was ultimately the once for all sacrifice. All the other sacrifices pointed to you. You were the sacrifice that really made a difference. And so Lord, we praise you for what you have done we praise you for how you, you, you clothe us with your righteousness. We praise you, Lord, for bringing us out of death into life, and a life, Lord, that has meaning and purpose. And, Lord, we, we are in, in awe, and we're humble before you because of that. Lord, I ask today also, if there's anyone here, Lord, who has been wrestling with their relationship with you, Lord, that, that things would, would be clear in their mind, Lord, about just your wonderful Grace and your goodness, and Lord, the gospel of your Son Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, I, I just pray for those who may be struggling with some of the themes, Lord, that we've touched on here. Just the, the theme of your sovereignty, the theme of the fact that that we feel that maybe we needed to contribute, and we're wrestling with the fact that your Scripture says that you're the one that does it. And Lord, just would you would you allow us to to, to patiently before you? Allow your word to fashion and to to need us, Lord, to a place of understanding. Just like the apostle prayed for the Ephesian church, Lord, I pray that the eyes of our hearts, Lord, would be enlightened, that you would have your way to show us your truth for your glory, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.